we will be continuing in our study of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we will be looking this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. So if you have a Bible, would you please turn there? And once you arrive there at 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let us pray. God, this is your word, authoritative and inspired, and we as your people need it, God. Man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. And so, God, I pray right now, make our hearts receptive to hear what you have to say and ready, God, ready to obey it. Lord, and by your spirit, we need help. And I pray that we would see the glories of what you have for us in this text. And as we think about the Lord's Supper and the significance of the Lord's Supper, God, we love you. We thank you for the good news of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Be seated. I don't know if uh, any of you had this experience as you were growing up, but uh, at each holiday, whether that be Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, uh, our family would have a big meal and uh, there would be a big dining table, and then um, the blue table would come out. And the blue table was where the peasants were designated to, that being me and all the other children. 
So my grandfather would pop out the blue table, and it wasn't a nice table. It wasn't fancy. It was one that you pull out the four legs on it, and you put it out. And that's where the children went and sat, the inferiors. And um, we were segregated. Uh, you know, we had to eat on paper plates over there. We missed big conversations that were going on. We, uh, we didn't have easy access to the food. You know, the food was on the big table where everybody, you know, you didn't have to, you didn't have to get up and get your, you know, a helping. It was just right there in front of you. You know, even so much so people, people, you know, made your plate, you know, and cut your ham into pieces. Mom, I'm 31. I don't need you to continue cutting my ham into pieces. Come on. And so, you know, we were, we were designated to, the, to the, the blue table, the inferior table. And I, I'm thinking, come on, people. We are blood here. And we are segregated. There is division in this family. Come on. And so, you know, what's unfortunate is that, I guess as a 10-year-old, I thought there was great division and dissension within our family. But in what's crazy about this situation is that this was a reality in the Corinthian church. But the difference is that the segregation and the division and dissension and disunity that was in the, in the body of the Corinthian church was based on status, socioeconomic status, uh, uh, where, we, where you were considered in the society, inferior or superior. And that this is what was happening within the Corinthian church, is that there was divisions and there was sex and there was segregation and there was factions. And it was revolved around one thing, and it was happening at the Lord's Supper. That's where it was happening at in Corinth. Is that the place that was supposed to be designated and the thing, activity that was designated as bringing people together, union, uniting the body, was actually the place of division and separation and dissension. And so this morning, that's what we're going to look at, and that's what Paul is trying to get across to us here in these verses 17 through 34, is that the Lord's Supper, something that we actually just took last week together, is the Lord's Supper is to be a demonstration of our union with Christ and our unity together. That's what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a visible demonstration when we come together and we offer this bread and drink together is that it's to be a demonstration that we have each individually who partake of it have been united to Christ and because we've been united to Christ, we are now united to one another. And this is the problem that Paul is addressing here in these verses is that when you come together for the Lord's Supper, it does not demonstrate that you are united to Christ and that you are united together. And so this is what we'll look at three points, is that the first point is this, the divisions at the supper, divisions at the supper, and this is in verses 17 through 22, divisions at the supper, is that for Corinth, as I just said, the place and activity that was supposed to represent unity and togetherness has become a, a place of disunity and division in the church. Um, as you may know, uh, Disney World is... Uh, what do they say? It's the blank of the earth, the the most expensive place on earth. Isn't that what they say? The, no, it's it's the happiest place on earth, right? It's where everybody's happy. You know, when I went, I, I saw the sign, the happiest place on earth. But I also saw some families fighting. 
particularly my family. Um, and, you know, this place has been designated as the happiest place on earth. Family feuds should not happen at Disney World. But I actually think they're probably increased because of that. Is that we have these places that are designated, oh, this is happiness. Happy things happen here. People have fun. People are always excited. People are always have a smile on their face. The place that should be known for being the happiest sometimes can cause fights and family feuds and disruptions, right? And this is the point that Paul's trying to get at, is that this place, when we come to this table, that is designated for union and unity can sometimes be for the exact opposite. Division and disunity. And this is what Paul is addressing them, and this is why he writes to them. Look at what he says. He, he wants to give a context to this, is that what I'm telling you about is happening in a particular place, in a particular setting, at a particular time. He says this, over five times here, when you come together, verse 17, when you come together as a church, verse 18, verse 20, when you come together, verse 33, when you come together, verse 34, what does it say? When you come together. Over five times, he's giving a setting. Is that the problem exists when you gather together as the body of Christ for corporate worship to be the church, to partake of the Lord's Supper together. This is when the problems are arising. It's not when you're out and about doing things around, around the city or whatever. No, it's actually when you're coming together uh, for Sunday morning worship and you're partaking of the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper, is that that's when the problems begin to arise there, when you come together. That's the context that this is when your behavior is out of hand and cannot be commended. Because when they get together, Paul says a very interesting line, it is not for the better, but it's for the worse. Is that when you get together, what the church should be when it gathers for corporate worship should actually be beneficial and edifying to you, especially when you take the Lord's Supper together, but it's not being beneficial or benefiting anyone who comes together. It actually is making you worse, is what he's saying. What a terrible presentation of a church, right? Man, when that church gets together, they're worse. They're not godlier. They don't look more like Jesus. They're actually, it's worse. And here's what's happening, is that divisions and factions are being created and are being revealed in their gatherings. And they gather as the body of Christ. He says this, I hear that there are divisions. There, there must be factions among you. So he's gotten word that there is divisions within the ranks. And Paul has already addressed divisions in the Corinthian church so far. That's been a big deal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-13, through 13, he's addressed this very issue. That you are even separating yourselves by, hey, I follow Apollos, and I follow Paul, and I follow Christ. Is that you are, you are already setting up these divisions and these factions within your body. And so this is continually a theme in 1 Corinthians, separation that is going on in the church. And so he is scolding them for this again. But, you know, there's something revealed when these divisions happen. When these factions happen within the church, it reveals something. And he says this, verse 19, for there must be factions among you. Here's the purpose. In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. 
look at the look at the purpose. Look look at one of the uh, uh, you could say one of the uh, side effects of divisions and factions with the in the church. It has an exposing effect to it, and that when divisions and factions happen within the church, it exposes the genuine. It exposes those who really follow Jesus, Jesus and those who don't. But factions and divisions have an exposing effect to them. They expose and reveal the genuine followers of Jesus. And so what are these divisions around? Well, it has to do with the, the haves and the have-nots. You see here. The haves and the have-nots. So, the, the rich and the poor are being divided here, even at the Lord's Supper. Is that the rich, they're bringing food, and they're gorging themselves on food, and they're, they're drinking so much that they are getting drunk. So they're gorging themselves to such a degree. And that they're doing this in the presence of the poor. So these are all Christians, rich Christians, poor Christians. And so the rich are just eating their food, gorging themselves in the presence of the poor while they're watching. Not sharing what they have. They weren't sharing their food or their resources with those in the church who had nothing. And so distinctions were being made. Divisions were being made in the church. You could think of it like if we had a, you know, as we have our normal potluck members meeting. So um, it would be as, as, you know, uh, you don't have it, you didn't bring anything to the potluck? Well, I guess you're just going to have to sit here and watch ourselves gorge up, you know, gorge and you'll just have to sit here and watch us, right? We don't do that at our potluck meeting, so just let me give you a, make, make sure I, I said it. That's not how it goes. You, you, can, you can eat even if you don't bring anything. But that, that's the concept of what's going on here at the Lord's Supper in Corinth, is that the rich are, have all this food, and they're coming together for this fellowship meal, and the poor in their presence are, are just watching them gorge themselves because they have nothing to offer. And the rich are just watching it, watching them while they're eating. And so Paul says this, is that if you're going to eat your own meal at the Lord's Supper, he's saying this to the rich, if you're going to do that and you're going to gorge yourself, eat it at home. Eat it at home. Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Because here's what's happening. As they're gorging themselves and eating and drinking, is that they are humiliating and despising the church of God. Despising them. Those who have nothing within the church. Is that their actions weren't only dividing the church. It was humiliating those who have nothing to offer. The poor there. It made them feel like second class Christians. Just kind of like when you get on a plane and you have to walk by the first class. Those people with their legs kicked up and people fanning them and you know. And bringing drinks to them and basically feeding grapes in their mouths. And they look at you like while you're, you know, they look back, you know, in the coach. And you're like, like this. Right? They, they despise. And I feel, I feel like they want to do that. They despise you and they humiliate you. They make you feel like a second class citizen or, or uh, I guess, Flight participant. And so Paul is not going to allow this. 
And Paul's not going to commend them for this, for making distinctions and divisions within the church that make a particular group of people who don't have anything to offer feel as though they are less or inferior in the kingdom of God and in the church of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not going to commend you for this. No, I will not praise you or condone you for behavior. But they would say, look, we're taking the Lord's Supper. He says, I don't care. That's not the Lord's Supper. That's not. He's not going to commend them for taking the Lord's Supper if they're not doing it in the right manner. And I would just say for us, church, there's a lot of applications here for us. Is that in the church, here at Crosspoint, in the local church, in the universal church, is this. There are no second-class Christians. There are no second-class Christians. Is that we have all these labels and these categories and these brackets and this status. All those in the church of Jesus Christ, they fall by the wayside. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. It doesn't matter what your house looks like. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. That may matter out in the real world. That may matter to your your the people you work at your company with, but guess what? In the church of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that we all have the same God. The gospel says that we are all saved from the same thing, sin, death, and hell. The gospel says that we all have the same Savior. The gospel says that we all have the same Spirit. And the gospel says that we're all going to the same glory. And so... Where you work, what you drive, where you live, what street you've been placed on, it doesn't matter. Status, labels, categories, brackets don't matter at all in the church of Jesus Christ. No one is superior or inferior based on any of those categories. In Christ, we are all inferior. We are all inferior because of our sin. But he has made us his children and his people. And that, that puts us on the same level. So let me just ask you this to kind of think about this. Do you ever, in the church, you look at someone and say, man, God's just blessed me a little bit more than them. Man, I'm just a little bit more well off than them. And they, mu- they must have messed up at some point because they don't have, they're not, they don't have the same uh, kind of car I drive. They don't have the same kind of house. They don't live in the same place, same neighborhood I look Whatever it may be, that sometimes we can look at people, even in our church body, and think, they're just a little bit less than me. And I would tell you this, be warned, Crosspoint, of thinking of people less than you based on worldly categories that mean nothing, mean nothing in the kingdom of Christ. But not only that, not only should the Lord's Supper break down any of those brackets and labels that we've created, the Lord's Supper should be about sharing. should be about sharing. And this is why we take up the benevolence offering every time that we do the Lord's Supper. You might think that, that, oh, it just happens that we just happen to do it on the first Sunday of every month. No, there's an intentional, intentionality while we do it on the first Sunday of every month after the Lord's Supper is that the Lord's Supper is to be a reminder for us that we are responsible for one another. That we are responsible for one another. And so when we take up the, take up the benevolence offering, 
It's a day for us to specifically recognize, identify, address, and provide for those who are part of our church family who, who may have hit a, just a struggle. It's our way of saying their problems are our problems too. That's what we do when we give the benevolence offering. My problems aren't just my problems. My problems are the church's problems. If I hit a financial struggle or if I hit a need, it's not just my need. It's not just my struggle. It's the struggle of all of us because we are united in Christ Jesus. So next time, next time we take up the Lord's Supper, when you walk out of here and you consider what Lord Lord lays on your heart to give to the benevolence offering, think about that when you put your money in the, in the, in the basket. Think about this. I'm responsible for these people in here. And their struggles are my struggles. And my struggles are their struggles. And I want to share and care for them. Because that is not what is happening in the Lord's Supper in Corinth. And so, their behavior of gorging themselves and not sharing with those who didn't have anything, it was draining the Lord's Supper of its significance. And that is serious. And so that's why Paul wants to be very clear with his next point of the significance of the Lord's Supper. And that's point number two. The significance of the Lord's Supper. It's because sometimes our behavior does not communicate that what we are doing here when we take the Lord's Supper is significant. I remember as a kid, before I had professed faith in Jesus Christ and was baptized, I remember when they would take the Lord's Supper quarterly at my, my home church, I remember always being jealous of everybody taking the Lord's Supper. Man, I just want a little bite, a little bite, Mom. Can I just, a little swig, a little appetizer before lunch. Man, I'm hungry. You know, I always said, man, why is everybody else getting a piece of bread? And Mom, my mom would say, no, son, you can't, you can't take the Lord's Supper. You know? And so I would just watch this plate just pass by me with my eyes. I'm like, man, this, this ain't fair. It's just a little piece of bread, and it's not even that good. And the drink, I, look, I know it's just grape juice, but it looks really good to me right now. And so for a child, I had a very, uh, I, I certainly probably uh, trivialized the Lord's Supper, right? I just wanted an appetizer. That's all it was to me. And you know what? I, Unfortunately, what I think we can do today and what I think the Corinthian church was doing then was that they, their actions were communicating that the Lord's Supper did not have much significance to them. That their actions were actually trivializing the Lord's Supper, gorging themselves and getting drunk on the wine. was actually saying that they don't really know what is happening in the significance of the Lord's Supper when they partake it. And so that's Paul what he is addressing here in these verses in 23 through 26. He wants to give them a good picture of, do you understand when you take the bread and when you take the cup, what it is symbolizing for you as an individual and for us as a body? And so he draws back in verses 23 and 24 to remind them that we receive this from the Lord Jesus Christ. That on the night when he was betrayed, he took the Last Supper with his disciples, if you can remember that. So he's, he's drawing them back that, hey, look, this is, th we're practicing this because our Savior established it for us. And as Jim has already brought up, is that for them it wasn't the Lord's Supper. It was a Passover meal. 
right? And when they were taking it, as the Jews did, were commanded to do, is that they took the Passover meal because it was their way of constantly reminding themselves of the great deliverance that they experienced at the hand of God in Egypt. So they, they ate and they drank to remind themselves of God's great deliverance for them. And that this is what we do, is that the bread and the cup they're symbols for us. It's not the actual physical body of Christ. It doesn't transform into the body of Christ. It's not the actual physical blood of Christ. It doesn't transform anything. These are symbols for us, and we need symbols. Is that symbols help us to remember things when we easily forget them. And so the bread and the cup are symbols for us to remind us of significant things that have happened for us and to us. And so he says, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. The bread is a symbol of Christ's body. And that his body was given for us. It's a very, very powerful statement for us. That his body was given on our behalf. Is that he died in our place. He took our place on the cross. Bearing our sin and our shame and our guilt and our punishment on himself. His body was broken for us. And this, when we take this bread, we remember what Christ did. Is that he gave his body for us. He offered himself as the sacrificial lamb on our behalf. Is that the bread is a reminder that because Christ offered himself, our sins have been atoned for. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24. Is that this is about his body. And the bread being the symbol for his body. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. That Christ has experienced his body being broken on our behalf, given for us. You can recall what Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 53 about how Christ was treated and chastised and beaten on our behalf. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced into his body for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Is that the bread is a reminder of what Christ physically experienced when he died the death that we deserve. His body was broken for us. So when we take the bread, it is a reminder of what Christ gave for us. He gave his body for us. And then we have the cup. The cup representative of his blood. The blood of the new covenant. The new covenant that was inaugurated by his sacrifice. And that now we can experience the forgiveness of sins. You've heard this language of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31. Is that God will give this new covenant and we will have a new heart and a new spirit. And we'll be able to obey him and our sins will be forgiven. And now Christ Jesus has come and he has inaugurated that new covenant through his life and his death. Is that we now are made, made right. And that this cup represents Christ shed blood for us. And that man, there is, there is power in the blood of Christ Jesus. Over and over again in the New Testament. Is that if you look. And, and just do a survey. Is that what the blood of Christ accomplishes. On the behalf of his people. 
is that it accomplishes their redemption. It accomplishes their reconciliation. It accomplishes their justification. It accomplishes their redemption. Listen to this, Hebrews 9.12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. What did Christ accomplish through the shedding of his own blood? Eternal redemption for his people. That's what the blood accomplishes for us. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is what the blood of Christ accomplishes for us. And this is what, when we drink the cup, it represents for us. But not only does the cup represent the blood of Christ and what it accomplishes for us, but also, the cup also represents God's wrath. The cup that Christ drank to the end. Is that in the book of Jeremiah, the cup is representative of God's justice and wrath. And on the cross, that is where Jesus bears the wrath of God in our place. Jeremiah 25, 15. Thus the Lord God, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. Is that when we drink the cup together, we, we recall and think that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us. And he drank it to the end. So that we would not have to. That is what we think about when we take the cup together. Is that not only what it accomplishes for us, but what Jesus did on our behalf. He drank the cup of God's wrath. So really, when we, when we sing, there is power in the blood, man, this should all come, I mean, there's power, there's power, there's wonder working power, right? In the blood of the Lamb. What it accomplishes for us, redemption, justification, atonement, reconciliation, there is truly power in the blood. And so, when we do this, when we drink and we eat the bread, Paul says this, you're doing, you're doing some things. Is that first, you're remembering, right? When you do this, you do this in what? In what of me? Remembrance. Remembering. Is that when we take when we take the Lord's Supper, is that it should draw our minds to remember things. To remember what Christ has done. His sacrifice that brought our salvation. To remember that just as the Passover was a, a meal that was to draw Israel's mind back to the deliverance that they experienced in the Exodus, now we drink the Lord's Supper realizing that we have a new Exodus through a new Moses. That is Christ Jesus. And He has brought deliverance for His people. Through his own life, death, and resurrection. And so when we drink and when we eat the Lord's Supper, we remember things. We are to remember. But not only that, we are to proclaim things. It says that. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Is that we are saying something to ourselves, to one another, and to the world when we take the bread and the cup. We are proclaiming the Lord's death. 
we are symbolically, symbolically proclaiming that we are united to Christ, united together, and that we have experienced the benefits of Christ Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me give you an example. Is that a ring, which this is my, um, I've lost my real ring, so now I'm on to rubber silicone rings uh, that I bought for $4.99 at Walmart. Four pack. Thankfully, wedding rings aren't, uh, aren't marriages, right? The ring is not a marriage. What does it do? It symbolizes something. It symbolizes a marriage. Praise the Lord. Is that what we are doing is that we are symbolizing something when we take the bread and the cup. Is that we are symbolically proclaiming. It's an act that says without words that we are saved by and united together through Christ's sacrifice. That's what the Lord's Supper says. And not only that is that we remember, we proclaim, but we also look ahead. We do this until a day. And what does it say? Until he comes. So as long as Christ tarries, we partake of this bread and this cup together. And we remember and we proclaim until Christ comes. So during the Lord's Supper, it's a forward-looking act that we're doing. Is that we're ultimately saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Because on that day, when we stand in the presence of Christ, there will be no more remembering. There will be no more proclaiming. There will only be rejoicing in Christ for what he has done. And so, this is the significance of the Lord's Supper that Paul is wanting to get across to the Corinthians. And I I just want to speak to one particular group in here. If you're an unbeliever here this morning or you're watching online, I just want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for joining us here. And that last week, we worshiped through a particular way of, of taking bread and a little cup of juice together. And that is one of the ways that we worship our God and that we proclaim to the world of what Christ has done on our behalf. That's what we do when we gather. That is one of the ways that we proclaim that. And that if you're an unbeliever here this morning and you don't understand, you've never seen the Lord's Supper, you've never heard about it, this is the first time that you have even heard the words, I just want to tell you this, is that we take the Lord's Supper because we have received the eternal blessings and benefits of being in Christ Jesus. And this morning, you can actually receive those as well. Is that Christ Jesus laid down his life for us sinners. And that we are unworthy and inferior. But Christ has come for us. And he has shed his blood on the cross. His body has been broken so that we can be made right with God. And so that's why on the first Sunday of every month, we come here and we take this bread and this juice. is to remember what Christ has done and proclaim it. And this morning, you can enjoy those benefits of Christ's broken body and his shed blood for you. You can find the forgiveness of sins through faith and repentance in Christ Jesus. And he will take you in. He will receive you. And his blood and his broken body will cover your sin. But Christians, let me ask you this. What's on your mind when you take the Lord's Supper? Is it about getting a lunch because you're really hungry? And I got I to gotta beat some people to lunch. Come on, can we get this thing over real quick? 
I want to speed it up, speed it up. Hey, deacons, can't you pass that thing out really a lot faster? Let me just say this. If that's on our minds, maybe our minds are in the wrong place. Is your mind remembering what Christ has done for you? Is the Lord's Supper provoking you to proclaim His name? That's what Paul says here. That's what the significance of it should be. Is that once you realize what it symbolizes, it then requires, requires you to remember and to proclaim it. That's what it does. But not only that, is that, that knowing the significance of the Lord's Supper should also encourage you to prepare for the Lord's Supper. And that's point number three, preparations for the Supper. Knowing the significance of the Lord's Supper shouldn't just call you to remember what Christ has done. It shouldn't just compel you to proclaim Christ's message. But it also should tell you to prepare yourselves to take the Lord's Supper. I don't know if maybe you've you've been the host or maybe you've been to a, a dinner party where um, you got there and things were unprepared. The host or maybe yourself were just, you weren't ready. Uh, the, 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 the meal is not done yet. It, it's taking a lot longer or you burnt something in the process or, or you don't you don't have enough plates you don't have enough uh, you don't have enough cups you don't have enough utensils you don't have enough chairs like it, it you you're totally unprepared for this dinner party that you plan that you and that you've invited guests to right uh, it's pretty disastrous right right to host a party that you are unprepared for and let me just say this it is spiritually disastrous and dangerous for you to be unprepared to take the lord's supper is that, yeah, it's, it might be embarrassing to invite guests and be unprepared for a dinner party. But it's not only going to be embarrassing, it's going to be dangerous, spiritually dangerous for us to partake of the Lord's Supper when we are not ready to because of sin. And so along with the instructions on the, ins- the significance of the Lord's Supper that Paul gives to the Corinthians, He also wants to give them a warning that because of the deep significance that what this symbolizes when we take the Lord's Supper, because of its deep significance for us, is that it's spiritually dangerous to partake while, what he's going to say, while contributing or harboring dissension, factions, divisions within the body of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. In an unworthy manner. What does that mean, in an unworthy manner? Because let me just tell you all, there's none of us who are worthy. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's in an unworthy manner. But so much more reason why we should take the Lord's Supper when recognizing that we are unworthy to take it. Unworthy manner seems to, we have to put it in context here. What's going on? What, what have we talked about so far? An unworthy manner seems to be, from what we've covered so far from verse 17, is that you are partaking in the Lord's Supper while you harbor, cultivate, uh, contribute to divisions and dissension and factions within the body. That's what unworthy manner is. 
is that you are eating the Lord's Supper together while maybe silently, maybe, maybe, maybe subtly upholding or harboring divisions and dissension and disunity with other people in the body of Christ. That's what it means to partake in an unworthy manner. And so Paul says, examine, judge yourselves. Verse 28, let a person examine. Verse 29, let them be discerning. Let them, verse 31, judge themselves. Is that there, There's a level of introspection and self-evaluation that we must do before we partake of this table. And that means we need to be asking ourselves, am I right now contributing, harboring, provoking any disunity, division, factions, dissension in the body of Christ at Crosspoint right now. Because if I am, I need to refrain from taking this meal. I need to refrain from partaking of the, of the bread and the cup. And what we need to do is this. Is that if we, if we find ourselves that we are contributing or harboring division, dissension in the body of Christ when we come to the Lord's table, then it's this. Go, repent, make amends, reconcile with that person. This is what Jesus tells them in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember in Matthew chapter 6. So if you are offering your gift there at the altar, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, there's some sort of division within the body right there. He says, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So there's a process for this. Is that if you find yourself that you have created division or dissension or disunity in the body of Christ, go reconcile, make amends, repent before you partake, and then come and partake. Because if not, there is severe mercy for those who partake in an unworthy manner you may experience God's severe mercy and judgment for partaking. This is what Paul says, verse 30. Very, very interesting. Is that this is the reason, Paul says, why many of you are weak and sick and ill, and some have even died. Is that some of these people, not all, so not all death, not all sickness, let me just be very clear, not, you know, not, not, just because you have the sniffles this morning, you have a cold, doesn't mean that you partook of the Lord's Supper last week in an unworthy manner. Just be very clear. But he does say that is the reason why some of you are sick, ill, weak, and some have died or fallen asleep. Is that they partook in an unworthy manner. That the consequences of partaking in the Lord's Supper while still contributing to division and disunity in the body of Christ can be costly. And that's why one author, Tom Schreiner, calls it a severe mercy. A severe mercy. Is that it can be the result, death and sickness can be the result of partaking in the Lord's Supper while contributing to division and disunity. But let me be clear, the consequences, death and sickness, the consequences are not uh, eternal judgment and hell. Let me, let me be very clear on that is that this seems to be within the context of the body of Christ, people who are genuine believers, 
who have partook of the Lord's Supper, partook of the table, while holding on to dissension and division and disunity. But these are the consequences are not final judgment or hell, but they're, again, what Tom Schreiner says, they, they're remedial and disciplinary. Is that for the Christian, the judgment that he's talking about, weakness, illness, sickness, death, is that this judgment is disciplinary. Is that the death of a Christian because of God's discipline is done to keep them from bringing further harm to themselves by continuing to partake while contributing to disunity in the body of Christ, bringing harm to the church, and bringing harm and disrepute on the glory of God. And so sometimes, if a person is upholding disunity and division in the body, God may take them out. And not not send them to hell, not, not, not final judgment, but for their own good, for the body's good, and for the glory of God. It's a severe mercy. And that it's remedial in the sense of the, the Christians who remain alive, they see this and they see it as a warning to them. That some people are sick, some people are ill, some people die for partaking in an unworthy manner. And it's a warning to them. We need to be very careful with this Lord's Supper. We need to examine ourselves. We need to do introspection. We need to make sure that we're not contributing to the disunity and division in the church. And so Paul's instructions here to them is this. In verses 33 and 34, he says that rid yourselves of division. Rid yourselves. Put to death these divisions among you. Provide for one another. Don't gorge yourselves there. You, you got it your own home for that kind of thing. But when you come to the Lord's Supper, provide for one another. Care. Welcome people in. Don't create divisions where it's, it's unwelcoming and, hey, these kind of people enjoy this kind of thing and, and, and you who are not rich or not like us, you, you, you get the second helping. No. Rid yourselves of divisions. Get rid of them. Welcome people. Provide for people. And this is the instructions for us when we partake of the Lord's Supper once a month. Is that this should be a constant reminder for us. Make sure that there are no divisions among us. Within us or even among us. And just for the last piece of application. I, I don't think I put these on your notes, but I, I want you to write these down. This is from a guy, Michael Green. And it's, it's six directions to look at when you take the Lord's Supper. To look back, to look inward, to look up, to look around, to look forward, and to look outward. I'll repeat those one more time. But when we take the bread and the cup, we should be looking all different directions. Now, I'm not saying when you take the bread and the cup, you're like, not like that. But look, look six different directions when you take the cup. Don't just throw it in your mouth. Think. This is, look back to the death of Christ. So when we take the bread and the cup, look back to the death of Christ. What Christ has accomplished on the cross on our behalf. His body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Look back to the death of Christ. Second one is this. 
Look inward in self-examination. So when you take the bread and the cup, don't just look back, but look inward. Am I harboring, am I upholding, am I holding on to any division, disunity with another person in this body? Am I doing that? Do I have something against someone in this body? Look inward and do self-examination. And if so, if you do, go. Reconcile. Repent. Make amends. So look back and then look inward. But also look up. Look up in fellowship with God. Because that is what the body and the blood of Christ has accomplished for us is that now because of what Christ Jesus has done on our behalf, the Lord's Supper is a reminder that we have union with God through Christ Jesus. We are united to Him. And so we look back to what Christ has done. We look inward and we look upward because we have union with this God that we were once in rebellion against. And then we look around. We look around in fellowship with each other. So when you partake of the bread and the cup next time, look around at all the people who are partaking with you. And remember that what Christ has done on our behalf has not just been meant to bring us together with God, but also to bring us together with each other. And so that's why we all do this together. That's the reason that we don't all send you home with a bread and a cup and say, just do it at your earliest convenience. Do it whenever you want to. No, there's a reason why we do it right here, Sunday mornings. We take the bread together. We drink the cup together. We don't do it isolated in our own homes because we're looking around saying, the people that I'm taking this bread with and the people that I'm drinking this cup with is not only am I united to God, but I'm also united to them. I'm in union with them. God has broken down walls and barriers between me and them. Yeah, we may look different. We may come from all different types of backgrounds and stories. It doesn't matter where we live, what we drive, or any of those things. Guess what I have in common with these people sitting around me? Christ. And that's all that matters. That's all that matters. So when you take the bread and the cup next time, look around you and say, man, they don't look like me, they don't smell like me, they don't act like me, they don't think like me, they don't talk like me. But they have Christ with me. And that's all that matters. We look back, we look inward, we look up, we look around, and we look forward. Is your mind set on Christ's return? Is your mind set on Christ's return? Because when we take this once a month, we're trying to remind ourselves, don't get caught up in the day-to-day -day stuff. That's what we often do, and that's what the Bible comes at us against. Look, there's a time stamp on life. Remember that. Christ is going to return. Don't get comfortable. Don't get complacent. And so every time when we come to the bread and the cup, we are saying, we're waiting. We're waiting for someone. And while we wait, we proclaim. And so, the Lord's Supper is meant to jolt you out of complacency. It's meant to jolt you out of comfort. It's meant to say, look, I am a sojourner here. I have no home. My home is in the eternal. We look forward to Christ's return. And lastly, we look outward to proclaim God's word to others. 
that when we take the bread and the cup, it's not only we take it as a symbol or a, a message to those sitting around us who are part of this church, who are part of God's people, that I'm united to them. But it's also, this is a visible form of evangelism for us. It's a visible form of evangelism. Is that we are proclaiming to the unbelievers who may be in here or the unbelieving world out there is that we have Christ, the Savior, the good news and the message for all people. We have that. It's here with this people who drink a cup of juice and, a piece of, and eat a piece of bread once a month. So this people who do this together, they have the best news in the world. And that is Jesus Christ. And so it's not just for us in here, it's for those out there. And that every month when we take it, we're reminding ourselves, the work is not done. Christ has accomplished it on the cross, yes. But our work as God's people are not done. It's to proclaim this good news, that what Christ has done on the cross. And so every month, it's a reminder again to motivate and compel us. Proclaim the good news of Jesus. This is what the Lord's Supper is about. It is about the gospel. And that is why we do it. It is a symbolic act that says we are a sinful people unworthy of God's love and affection and salvation. But God in His great mercy came and sent Christ Jesus. And that because we were and are so sinful and rebellious, it took a perfect sacrificial lamb to cleanse us from our sins. And that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that we could be made righteous. And that we now wait for the day when we will be completely righteous with the lamb of God at his throne in his presence forevermore. And lastly, let me just say this about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is preparing us for an even greater feast. The fellowship meal of the Lamb that we will all experience and get to feast on. And I say gorge ourselves. That meal that we will all partake of and eat of in the new heavens and new earth because of Christ. And we will eat with thankfulness. Because we know we only sit at that table because of what the host has done for us. It's the only reason. This morning, if you want to partake of that table, if partake temporarily of this table, you can. But it is only through faith in Christ Jesus, repentance of your sins. There, you can, you can partake. For a time, partake of this table while you wait for that day when you will eternally partake of the table of the Lamb. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. And we're so thankful that you love us when we do not deserve it. And that God, I pray that when we take the Lord's Supper, it would have a greater significance and value for us. That we look back, we look in, 
We look out, we look up, we look forward, we look around because of what Christ has done. All that is only accomplished through his life and his death and his resurrection. And we, we partake in thankfulness for that. God, I pray that you would be with us right now as we sing together, that we would sing in thankfulness. Christ's body has been given for us and his blood has been shed on our behalf. In Christ's name we pray.